Matthew chapter 10. Well, I want to tell you, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, we had a extremely wonderful time traveling out to the East Coast. Uh, I've always wanted to do that, be able to take my family to see some of these very historic sites. And uh, we, we got a chance to do that thanks to you and, and just the privilege of being able to take a vacation like that. And so we were, you know, in Williamsburg, Jamestown, Yorktown, Washington, D.C. It, it was awesome. Not, let me tell you, you know, we put like 3,500 miles on our van, okay? You know, it's creeping up there to the 200,000 mark, you know, and we're just like, you know, Lord, just kind of get us through here. And what happens in our family is anytime that something, you know, crazy or obnoxious happens, and with all six of us, that's going to happen, uh, one of the kids just says this, family togetherness, Okay. And it kind of almost melodically family togetherness. OK, and so we had several events that, you know, led to family togetherness. Like, for instance, one of the things we were really looking forward to is be able to hit Williamsburg. OK, second capital, of Virginia, really a hot spot right before the Revolutionary War to be there on the 4th of July. And, you know, lo and behold, it all worked out. We were able to be there. And uh, I want to do this right. We brought some picnic blankets. They're going to have a little concert with patriotic music, fife and drum. I got kind of front row area blankets out there and stuff like that. And we're set up not only listen to watch the concert, but then also to watch the fireworks afterwards. It was great. Everything was just going perfectly until about five o'clock when what is that? Is, is that rain? And sure enough, you know, it just starts coming down and it came down. I mean, just they'd never had a downpour like that for years. In fact, it was the first time in 21 years they had to cancel everything. Uh, so, you know, I'm like, oh, great. So we're we're taking shelter underneath anything we might be able to find. Finally, we sent the kids and Karina off to the van and I'm going to go get it, rescue our blankets and stuff. And I'm I'm literally on 4th of July. I'm standing out there. I'm just drenched and I'm wringing out my blankets at the jail there. OK, and so I finally make my way back and and then it's just family togetherness. Get in the van. I, I had to strip my shirt off. I was going to get my whole van. Soaked. So I'm dri- we're driving through the storm trying to get back to our hotel. And uh, I don't know if you ever had this experience in a storm, but uh, one of the windshield wipers kind of like flew off. OK. And it was on my side, okay? And it's dangling on there, and I'm driving on the highway, you know, like, oh, and family togetherness. And, you know, eventually I pull over to the side, and here's this half-naked man from Texas out there, and he's trying to fix this car in the storm. I was doing Texas proud, you know. They saw the plates there as they walked in. We had events like that. We were stuck in traffic in New York City. Uh, I thought Saturday coming right around noon, New York City, you should be able to go through there, no problem, right? Wrong. Traffic jam. And like made me want to never live there. OK, well, I'm like, I'm smart. So I'm coming back. I'm going to come through at about midnight. OK, and so I did. We had everybody all loaded up there. We're making our way. No way. They had reduced three lanes down to one. It was even worse. And, and what do we kids say? Family togetherness. And we had plenty of that family togetherness. Now, you know, it was really kind of cool to go see these historic sites. The first one we went to was Jamestown. I think you might be familiar with it, but it was the first established colony that England had placed here in this this new found land here. And so they they actually sent over 101. Well, actually, they sent more than this, but they 45 died on the journey. They sent three ships, those that made it 101 men, four boys. And they set up and it was an extremely difficult experience. Um, they thought this would be probably a pretty decent place to actually start the first colony because they noticed that the Indians weren't around there. And there was a real good reason why the Powhatan Indians weren't there. They considered that land rather inhabitable. You just couldn't live there. And so that's why they didn't, never did there. And so they set up this first colony. It was it was one trial after another. Bad decisions. 
bad use of resources, terrible weather. The Indians would attack them. They were starving to death, and most of them actually died. And they have, several, they have two museums that kind of commemorate this early activity of this, of this establishment of this, this colony and, and this little town, Jamestown. And one of the things that you start to pick up as you start reading all this is that these are just very ordinary people that were involved in a rather extraordinary event. I mean, they were very much like you and I. And yet when we consider some of these people and the founding of our country and the establishment of 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 uh, civilization from the Europe moving over here and starting to inhabit this place we call America. These were just very ordinary people that did rather extraordinary things, but they probably didn't know it at the time. And what we do is we kind of put people like this in an untouchable category. Well, they must be much smarter, much stronger, have greater stamina. They have a greater zeal, like they had much better resources than we do. And we consider that we are completely different than them when, in fact, we are just like them. When you open up your Bibles, the, the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew 10, you know what? We're going to come across a group of people, with the exception of one, we consider them untouchable. We consider them like they were like probably God just actually like had them descend from heaven or something. They just are too great of individuals. They accomplished way too much. And certainly we can't relate to them when, in fact, that would be a grave error. And I'm speaking specifically of the apostles. You certainly heard the name. You could probably name three or four of them. You're you're familiar enough with them, but you put them like most people in a category like they're untouchable. They function at a completely different realm when, in fact, God gives us not only their names, but some of the details of their life so that you and I will always remember this one critical point. And that is God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. God uses the ordinary and through his power, he brings transformation of life and he actually brings about the extraordinary accomplishment of the advancement of his kingdom in the hearts and the lives of people in some of the hardest places of the world. And that is what we're going to encounter. You see, God has this plan that those who actually experience his presence, his goodness, his grace, they express it. Now, let me just kind of review where we've been in Matthew, which brings us to this major transition in the gospel. In Matthew 8 and 9, those chapters, Jesus is establishing himself that he truly is the Messiah. He is fully God. He does these miracles one after another that affirm his deity and shows for indeed, just as promised by the prophets, that Messiah would bring about healing, the restoration of health. It was really a foretaste of the kingdom to come. And so Jesus heals the sick. He casts out demons. Those who are injured, he brings about healing. Those who can't see, he gives sight. Those who can't hear, he makes them hear. Those who can't speak, he releases their tongues so they can speak. And then a culminating miracle is he actually raises someone from the dead. And all of this is to clearly establish in every single mind, both then and now, indeed he's God and he is the Messiah. But there are some people that should have embraced him as such should have realized he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. That is the Pharisees and the scribes, those who had been studying the Old Testament, who should have been waiting for the Messiah. And once they saw he was doing exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do, they should have embraced him when, in fact, they rejected him. And there is a major turning point in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. I want you to see it again. 
the Pharisees were saying, you know what? This Jesus, we're not so sure about him. He, they said he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Instead of saying, indeed, he lines up with the scriptures. He is, he is the Messiah. We should follow him. We should embrace him as Lord. They're like, no, we don't like how he's taking away our influence. We don't like that he actually confronts us in all our legalism. And he, we don't like that he actually confronts us in our traditions that we placed even before, before scripture. And so, you know what? Let me, that what they started publicizing is that this Jesus, the reason that the demons obey him is because he's in league with Satan himself. These were the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they had completely missed the whole point of the Old Testament promising and pointing to a Messiah. And so they said he's in league with the devil. And it is after this statement that Jesus once again affirms in verse 35 that indeed he's the Messiah, and then there's this turning point. You want to see the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Savior, you look at it in verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. It literally, from his innermost being, Jesus was broken up and moved to tears because the people didn't have spiritual leaders that gave a rip about them. They didn't care. They were unwilling. They were unable. They would not truly lead the people well. And so Christ, Jesus' first concern, what drove him to just utter brokenness, is that there were no spiritual leaders for his people. And so he says, I want you to pray. He says, verse 37, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's all out there. It's harvest time. But there are so few workers who will actually go out and do the work of my ministry. And so he says, verse 38, I want you to pray. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He says, I want you to pray. You know, it's really interesting when when we pray about needs. God oftentimes uses us to start being involved to meet those needs. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus said, I want you men to pray. Pray that the Lord will send out workers in the harvest. And beginning in the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, they become the answer to their very own prayers. Now we see in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and watch this. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I hope you didn't just kind of just read over those words real quickly like, oh, okay. Like that's some every ordinary uh, event that just happens all the time. Uh, absolutely not. You know, when Jesus healed the sick and the lame and, and the blind and even raised someone from the dead, I mean, that is an expression of utter power. But to actually be able to give your authority to another is absolutely unprecedented. In fact, it would be an even greater miracle for him to actually do his work through people, through these guys that we're going to start to get to know, these disciples whom he names, verse 2, as the 12 apostles. But he is showing his absolute authority as God that he can actually do his work through others. And so he actually gives them the authority to do the work that he's been doing. Now, why did Jesus do all these miracles? What's the purpose? 
Well, one is to show God's great compassion for the hurting and the broken, the needy, the disoriented, those who are crushed by life, those who are discouraged beyond able to even move. If you're in that situation, God has a great heart of love and compassion, and it's revealed in Jesus Christ, even today. But let me give you an even greater reason why these miracles took place. That is to show that indeed he is the Messiah, that the kingdom of God has come. That wherever you're at, whatever little religious system you've abided in, or whether you're an atheist, agnostic, whatever you cult you're a part of, whatever idol you're bowing down to worship, whether it be money or some, some stone, the call is to turn, repent, turn from that with brokenness and truly trust him because he is the Messiah and his kingdom has come. And so he gives his ability and authority to these men, and he is actually going to commission them and send them out. You see, that has always been God's plan. He is going to use the very ordinary, very ordinary people like you and like me to accomplish his extraordinary work. And in chapter 10 is the great, this great commission that he gives his men, and they're going to go and start with the Jewish people. When Matthew ends this gospel... He's going to Jesus is going to commission his men to go to the uttermost ends of the earth and go make disciples. I want you to do this until I return. This will be perpetual from one generation after another generation. And by the way, this is our time to fulfill the call to go make disciples. Now, it says in verse two, now the names of the twelve Apostles. Now, a disciple is one who comes under another to learn. Okay, he is a student. He is one who is learning. You see that word apostle in verse two. An apostle. You're you're so familiar with that word that you might kind of forget what it actually means. It means one who is officially sent forth. He is an officially sent one. The Greeks would use it uh, for someone who is representing the king. Okay, so the king had an emissary. He was going to go give a message. And like we would use like an ambassador, we send ambassadors to other country. They speak, they speak for our country, specifically for our president. Well, that's how they use it. An apostle is an officially sent one. You are commissioned, you are empowered, and what you say represents the king. And that's what Jesus does. He takes these disciples and he is going to give them a specific, unique position, and that is his official official representatives when they speak when they act they are doing so in the place for the king and jesus is going to train them you see jesus has always been about the work of training his disciples to do his work do the work of the ministry when you read through the gospel don't think it's just jesus doing some random haphazard miracles sermon here here he shows up here then things didn't go so well over here got ran out of town over here There was always a plan that he was following. He was building and developing his men who would carry on his mission after he would ascend to the father. And so he names the 12 apostles. Now, these guys that we're about to pick up, I know that most people put them in the untouchable category, but they are very much like you and like I. They're cut out of the same bolt of cloth of humanity. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, for instance, a, a great writer, a great writer can take a piece of paper 
And he can write a poem on that or she can do that. And it can be worth untold amount of money. Or like a painter. Get a 50 cent piece of canvas. It's blank. With his brush, heart, imagination, skill. He can turn it into a masterpiece that could fetch millions. Or just like an ordinary little piece of paper. But someone of great significance signs it. And that paper can become priceless. That's what God does. He takes people like, like me, all my faults, fears, failures, lack of skill. But he could do his work through me. It changes everything. He wants to do the same in you. And he is. Look around. I mean, all of us have got problems, issues, fears. All of us have sinned greatly. I mean, we're not even half what we try to give the impression that we are, right? And if you want to just try to see what you can do on your own, you find out that it doesn't amount to much. But should you yield your life to Jesus and truly, as he says, follow me, you follow him as Lord. He writes and paints his masterpiece in our life. And there's simply no price that can be placed on the grace of God being lived out in the lives of people. Now, these guys that we're going to see, man, they had issues. They were they liked to fight with each other. They were always trying to get ahead of each other. They'd run off of the mouth. They'd say things they shouldn't say. They didn't get it a lot of times. I mean, they just like didn't get it. I mean, how could you be with Jesus and not get it? These guys managed to do that. We would have been just like them. Jesus, you gave that parable. Can you help me out? I didn't get it again. You know, and that's how they were. One of the things, one of the qualities of these men that was that they had to have is you have to be teachable. And they were teachable. And one of the reasons why God actually has their names recorded is that he wants us to realize that if God could use them, he can use us. God could use them. He could use me. He could use you. You see, God has never really had anything but the sinful and simple and the deficient and the broken to work with. That has always been his plan, to use the totally inadequate to bring about his work to show not your power, but his power working in you. I mean, frankly, if you're involved in anything of any significance, let it be known that it was God who was at work in you. You're going to get in real trouble when you go, hey, look at me and all that I've done. Okay? I mean, whether you're the king of Babylon and you've got to be turned into a resident in your own state park as an animal, or God just has to humble you, God wants us to realize he is doing his work through us. But if you just kind of look at kind of just various people in the Bible, look at them. I mean, we get started with Noah. Okay, Noah built the ark, man. He obeys God, does everything God says, loads off the animals, makes it through the flood. And then what does he do when he, I mean, after experiencing such an amazing, significant act of faith, took a long period of time. What does he do when he's done? Keep on the same trajectory? Uh, well, actually, he has a period of drunkenness in his life. Yeah. And indecency. Where you look at a guy like Abraham, father of faith, and yet he acts out of fear. Or he feels like, yeah, you promised me as a great nation, but you can't get it worked out, God. I'll take matters into my own hands. And he totally goes against what God has. Furthermore, he lies about his wife. Hey, that's, that's Abraham. God could use a guy like that? Can God use a liar? 
Could God use a guy who doesn't have a lot of faith at times? He did in Abraham's case. How about Isaac? It's interesting. Isaac kind of follows suit with dad. Dad lies about his wife. Isaac finds himself in a jam. Like, gee, what did dad do? Oh, yeah, he lies. And he makes up this story about his wife. Oh, no, she's not my wife. How about uh, Jacob? Okay. Stalwart. The 12 tribes come from Jacob's family. Those are his sons. But Jacob, my, what an interesting guy. He takes advantage of his brother's hunger to steal his birthright. A conniving little guy. You know what I'm saying? Just the kind of guy that get underneath your skin, yet God could use a guy like Jacob. Does in great ways. How about Moses? Certainly an impeccable leader, right? A great man. Take all these whining, bickering people out of Egypt. Lead them through the desert for 40, 40 years. I mean, taking kids to Six Flags for one day is one thing. But can you imagine leading them 40 years in a desert? Where's the water? Where's the food? Moses wanted to bring us out here and griping and complaining. Uh, did you know that Moses was a murderer? Oh, you didn't read that? On the little bio on him? That's right. God could use a, a, a murderer. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm real sure. That's why he is recorded with great amount of ink. You know, and Moses slipped into a real depression. He's like, God, if I have to be stuck with these people, would you just take my life now? Okay, that's pretty much what he said. Kill me, is what he literally said. Could God use a guy who is despairing of life? Absolutely. You need another guy? How about Aaron? How about Moses' brother? Certainly he was a great guy. Yeah, he was a swell dude. Yeah, Moses is up, Mount Sinai, receiving the law from God. This is the way to live. The Ten Commandments and all of that comes from it. And what is brother Aaron doing down there? Well, he's having a little party, right? And then he's like, hey, guys, why don't you bring all your gold? You guys want a God? You need something to see, right? Well, I'll tell you what. You bring all your gold here. We'll see what happens here. He forms a little image out of there, and they're all bowing down and worship. And they got this wild party that pales anything that's happened on some of these campuses in college. And God uses Aaron and makes him the first high priest to lead the nation. Can God use the broken and adequate Absolutely. How about a guy like Gideon? He had little confidence in self and less in God. And yet God used him to accomplish a great victory. Here's a guy for you. How about Samson? Well, we don't read, write a lot of books about Samson, do we? He had this huge issue in his life called lust out of control. There was a particular woman, Delilah. He just couldn't keep his focus off of her. And it led to all sorts of heartache for him. And for the nation, because he was one of the nation's judges. And yet, could God use a guy like that? Indeed, he does. He specializes in working with the broken. He's not going to leave you like that. He is going to change you. It's no excuse for sinfulness. But he does use the inadequate. Got a long track record doing it. How about a guy like David? Yes, wrote all the Psalms. Great guy. Stiller soldier. A leader of leaders. A man's man. And yet he had a heart where he could write all this poetry and all these psalms. God used him in great significant ways. He had a, I guess we could say a, a, maybe a lust issue. Could we say that? Yeah. He actually commits adultery and then sees to it that that woman's husband, one of his key soldiers, is put to death. And he was, by the way, a terrible father. No parenting book references David as a stellar example. Because he was awful. He could lead 
the masses and lead Israel, but he simply couldn't lead his family. And yet, did God use him? Yeah, he did. How about Elijah? Man, Elijah, what a prophet. I mean, this guy took on 850 false prophets of Baal. One on 850, okay? And and he showed by just saying, listen, I'll show you God's power. And God creates this fire and just consumes the sacrifice. And then he had all these 850 false prophets put to death. And then the, there is this little queen by the name of Jezebel. And she says, that's it. You killed all of my little priests that told me everything I'd like to hear. I'm going to put you to death soon. And so you, you would think like a great guy like Elijah, he's like, some woman running off the mouth telling me she's going to kill me. Yeah, real. I just took care of 850 right now. Oh, no. He took off and he ran and ran until he could run no more. And he slipped into a deep depression. Could God use a guy like Elijah? Yes. Or maybe one of the favorites, Jonah. Oh, man, Jonah was great. God says, I'm going to do a great thing to you. There's all these wicked Ninevites, and I'm going to have a revival, and I'm going to use you. You go tell them about me and tell them to repent. Oh, no way. I hate those guys. It's time for me to have a little Spanish vacation. So he takes off the complete opposite direction. Okay, and he's in the sea, right? And God has to teach him a few lessons, and he's in a large fish, and there's a little regurgitation issues because the kids are here. We won't go into great detail. But he comes out literally stained for life coming out of that, okay? All those gastric deuces on him. And, you know, and he's, kind of, he's thinking much more clearly. In fact, he has a great worship experience while he's in the digestive system of this fish. And then God says, okay, uh, let's try this again. You remember what my plan was? I still haven't changed that. I, I want to see these people come to know me. You ready to go now? The guy has no hair. He probably lost an eye. He's all bleached white. You know, he's like, let's do this. You know what I'm saying? So he goes. And when 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 there's great revival happens, remember, he actually set up right over camp. You know, he's going to watch this, you know, and he's going to see what God's going to do. He's hoping God's going to judge them. But what he witnesses is widespread repentance. They all dress in sackcloth and ashes. They even dress their animals like that. They put ashes on them and sackcloth. They were a country in mourning. And you know what? Jonah resented God's grace in their life. And yet, could God use a guy like Jonah? Yes. Why do I tell you all this? Because God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. That is true then. It is true at the time of these these apostles being sent out. And it is absolutely true now. So what was his strategy? I mean, how did Jesus do this? How did he take these very ordinary men and have them literally take the gospel to the ends of the earth and establish the church. How did that happen? Well, let me just give you five aspects of his strategy, of his plan. First thing he did is he called them to himself. It really was very simple. Jesus' call is this. Follow me. Two words. If you can fully understand them and do them, literally your life will be changed. He didn't say, I really want you to be my best friend. Will you just please be my friend and just kind of come and hang out with me and we'll have lunch together? No, it's not accepting Jesus as your friend. He could really help you out when you get in a jam. Just call Jesus. No, it was follow me. Leave everything else behind. Wherever you found your security, your identity, your hopes, your dreams, your source of strength, your inner power, whatever that might be, drop it. Follow me. And so it begins with a call, a call to know him as Lord and to follow him as Lord, literally to do as he says. 
And by the way, there's a lot of folks that identify themselves as Christians, but they take the whole idea of following Jesus as an option. In fact, we are facing a crisis, especially in our country, when we don't even know what Jesus is even asking us to do. We are so unfamiliar with his words, unfamiliar with the scriptures, his commands, his imperatives, that we wouldn't know how to follow him if we had to because we don't even know what he said because we will not take the time and, and many a church is moving away from even teaching this. You can keep people laughing and give them a few good stories and send them off telling them they're nice people. Jesus began the call to discipleship with this, follow me. Then the second aspect of his strategy was this. He communicated with them. Not only were they with him, and he spent a lot of time with them. They lived with him, they ate with him, they slept in the same places. But he communicated with them. He taught them. He was always giving them instruction. Now, Jesus didn't have a seminary. Somewhere we got the idea like, well, if you really want to be holy, you've got to go off to a seminary. Okay? All right? No, 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 no. Did Jesus have a formal school? Like, great. You guys want to follow me? I'm going to send you off here in Jerusalem. we got this little deal here for your program. Come back with your certificate, and then let's see what will happen. No. Jesus was his own school. He was his own curriculum, and the world was his lab. You just come follow me. Please do not think like, you got to go and get a religious education. You have to have a heart that will follow him and listen to his words. And frankly, all of you have a copy. Some of you have multiple copies of what he had to say in your home. And that's what he did. He taught them. He instructed them. gave them parables. They had Q&A sessions. They're like, they would ask him questions. Jesus would answer. Jesus would ask them questions. They're like, ooh, that was a good one. I have no idea. That's how they learned. They were with him. He was communicating with them. It was an ongoing experience. But then there was another aspect to his strategy. He actually coached them. He trained them. You see, it wasn't that they just had an understanding of what he was saying. Jesus wants application. Wow, we're missing this. We think that, well, to know Jesus is just to know about him. When in actuality, he made it explicitly clear, like in Luke chapter 6, where he said, everyone who comes to me hears my words and acts on them. He wants us to put into play what he has asked us to do, and he never asks us to do anything he doesn't give us the strength and his spirit to do so. He wants us to build a life on the rock of himself, but that requires that you actually act on what he's told you to do. He was not in the business of making smarter sinners. Well, they're, they're highly educated sinners. No, they are people who are being transformed within because they are learning to obey me. They're learning to walk in dependence upon my spirit. They are trusting me and they are growing. And so that's what he was doing. And he, part of his coaching, not only like we're going to see where he sends them off and he's going to send them off on a little evangelistic mission here next week, but he actually modeled for them what it was to follow God wholeheartedly. When Jesus talked about obedience, they're like, man, I wish I had a, an example what that looked like. All they had to do was look at him who said, I always do the will of my father. They always saw him doing the will of the father. They'd see him praying. And when they wanted an stellar example of what absolute obedience looked like, Jesus gave it to him when he spread his arms on that beam. And he allowed himself to be crucified. Why? To obey the Father, to bring about the salvation of all who will trust in him. He came to pay the penalty for sins. You're a sinner? That's why Christ came. He came to die in your place in obedience to the Father so that if you will totally trust in him, you can have salvation 
and eternal life because he rose again. So he, he showed them an example. And by the way, that's how discipleship works the best. You know, a lot can be learned from classroom and books and personal experience. And I, I want to attest to that. I've learned a lot in those three areas. But the best way in which discipleship takes place is by living in close proximity and in connection with a holy example. And that's what Jesus did with his men. Come learn from me. Let me invest in you because I'm going to send you out. There was another aspect. This is huge. If you're going to be involved in any sort of uh, discipleship relationship, you're going to help someone grow in their faith. You can't miss this one. And certainly Jesus didn't. He cared for them. Care might actually be um, too weak of a word. He absolutely loved them. In fact, John 13 verse 1 says, he says that he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them eternally. He loved them to the end. He loved them with everything he had. If you're going to lead people, spiritually lead people, you've got to love them. And that was certainly true of Jesus. He cared for them. He washed their feet. He prayed with them, took care of them. He protected them. He taught them. He loved them. He died for them. Let me give you the fifth fifth aspect of his strategy. He commissioned them. And that's what's going to happen in chapter 10 and at the end of this gospel. He sent them forth to be about his work. He said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Before chapter 10, all the apostles did, all these guys did was they hung out with Jesus. And they just, Jesus do another miracle and they'd like, we're with Jesus. Whoa, that was awesome. Okay. And then Jesus would give a sermon and they'd be like trying to figure it out. But they always, Jesus finish up and like, yep, we're, we're with him. We're, we're right in tight with Jesus. Now in chapter 10, he says, All right, that's all real good. You've been learning, but now I'm going to send you out. So we come to this list of names, chapter 10, verse 2. These 12 apostles. I just gave you a little overview of how Jesus invested in his men. Now he's going to send them out. The first, and then he starts naming them. Now, there's there's 12. Uh, You will always find them in three groups of four. And there is always a leader in each group. So every time you have a listing of apostles... You always have them grouped in three groups of four, and there is always a leader of each group. The first group actually gets the most attention. Okay, We don't like the idea that Jesus would give more attention to a few than to others. But actually, that was his plan. He had the masses. He preached messages. And then he had about 70 that were rather close affiliates that were following. From those, he actually chose 12. From the group of 12, he had his top four in this top group. And even in that group, he had three. He was always developing a core group that would once again minister to the masses. But indeed, he was a man, fully man, fully God. And so he made a choice and he selected a few. And we have in this first group two sets of brothers. Okay, I don't know how you're getting along with your brother. But could you imagine that you were with your brother full time? Okay, and you're always working with them and you're with him. You have two sets of brothers in this first set. And they all happen to be fishermen. Okay, now. Ancient documents show that people in this time went by multiple names. Okay, you could actually see that in ancient documents. Even on certain tombstones, they would have a listing of several names by which an individual was called. And that was certainly true of the apostles in the time. They had multiple names that they went by. But to appreciate who they are, these people, you've got to know how they lived, 
who they live for, and what they were willing to die for. It would be a shame if these were just simply names on a page and you just kind of read through them like, oh boy, 12, and then just skip over. Because indeed, God wants us to see these are very ordinary men that he was going to do an extraordinary work through. The first one is a guy that we're very familiar with. You see him there. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. Okay. Now, Simon was the name that his parents had given him. But Jesus says, you know, I know you're called Simon, but I'm going to give you another name. I'm going to give you the name Peter or in Aramaic Cephas. And the name means rock. Now, this must have been a shock to all the other guys that were gathered around because Peter. Wow. There's a lot of print. Do you know that Peter, apart from Jesus, is mentioned more than any other individual in the New Testament? He gets a lot of press because he is always with Jesus. He's talking. He's asking questions. And and sometimes he is going way beyond the bounds of appropriateness. There's times that he's telling Jesus what to do. Okay, that that never works. I mean, what are you doing? You know, we do the same thing, right? I mean, look at some of our prayers the past month. Aren't we just kind of like Jesus do this for us now, right? He'd do that face to face. There was no man that ever gave such a greater testimony of who Jesus is or a greater denial. You see, Peter was a very vacillating, impulsive, do this, go there, one minute, standing strong, I'll never deny you. A few hours later, I don't know, man, what are you talking about? What's that rooster crowing in the background? You know, he was just like that. He was impulsive, impetuous. When when Jesus said, you're going to be Peter Rock, the other guy's like, what? This guy's all over the map. Slippery, can't be pinned down. See, Jesus was saying, listen, under my power, you're going to be my man. You learn to trust me. Yeah, you got a lot of rough edges, man. But let me work in you. You learn to follow me. I'm going to turn you into a rock. And indeed he did. Peter became known as the apostle of the Jews. He, uh, was, he was the author that God used, the human author. The Spirit wrote first Second Peter. They're found in the New Testament. He is the one who mentored a man by the name of Mark, a man. Mark, by the way, knew significant failure. And yet it is through this relationship that the gospel of Mark is written. Peter being the primary means of all the information that is found in there. Tradition reports that Peter died a cruel death. Let me take you to 62 A.D. He was with his wife. When they were apprehended, he would, they would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ. They were absolutely certain that he not only was the Messiah, he is the Messiah. He was sinless. They knew he had died, but he rose again, and they would not renounce that. And so this is what they did. They made Peter watch as his wife was executed. Eusebius writes of this event that takes place, and Peter, can you imagine Stop. Can you imagine watching your spouse being crucified for the Lord because she will not recant? And it's recorded that Peter just came up, came up to her and kept saying, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. After he watched his wife's death, then they put him to death. He was so moved by the experience And felt so utterly unworthy to be crucified like his Lord. He continually requested that they actually crucify him upside down. And so they did. On the Apian way. 
outside of Rome. You see, this next guy, uh, Peter's brother, Andrew, Andrew, his brother. Now, Andrew is just such a rare person because he is willing to always take second place. He doesn't make any flash, any scene. He probably never had a chance to talk because his brother was always running off of the mouth. He's just, Peter, I want to say something, but Peter was talking again. But you know, God uses the Andrew types, the people that are quiet, but they're doing the work of the Lord in very great ways. In fact, you know how a guy like Peter actually comes to meet Jesus? It's through the invitation of a guy, his brother, Andrew. Andrew, according to tradition, led a provincial governor's wife to Christ after Christ's resurrection. The, uh, this, this guy was so infuriated that his wife had become a Christian that he tried to make her recant. But his wife would not recant can't his, her faith in Christ. And so what he did is he took Andrew and he had him crucified in a cross. It's literally the Greek letter Chi, which is just like our X. It looks just like this. And he had him crucified on this X. And for two days, he was on nailed to that X. And the tradition records that and during that two days, he kept preaching and speaking to anybody as he's dying in agony, the gospel of Jesus to any who would listen. See this next guy on the list? James, the son of Zebedee. When Herod Agrippa I decided that this Christianity thing had gone too far, he's like, listen, we're going to put an end to it. I'm going to start with someone. And he started with this apostle, James. He put him to death. Now, James' testimony, he had a, a, obviously a rather short life. He's the first apostle to die for the faith. When he is being led away up to judgment, the soldier that leads him, and this is recorded by uh, Eusebius, who records the words of Clement of Alexandria, who apparently observed this, that when he's being led to this judgment seat, the soldier tells him that he himself is a Christian and he starts begging for forgiveness. And apparently James stops and he pauses and then he says to the soldier, peace be with you. And he kisses him. And then after judgment is passed, both of these guys were beheaded at the exact same time. Then there's another brother there. You see John, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Zebedee, and then John, his brother. James and John, by the way, were known as the sons of thunder. That's what Jesus called them. So these guys had some boisterous, loud personalities. Really interesting. John, God uses John in such significant ways. He writes five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, three letters, and then he's involved in this great, significant work and that he's writing the final book of Scripture, the book of Revelation. It's interesting. John is so captured by the love of God. Eighty times in his letters, he, refer, he wrote, uses the word love. And 70 times he uses the word testimony or a synonym for testimony. He really believed that to be a testimony for God, you had to be one who was in love with him and show that love to others. And that indeed was his life. Even after he sent in exile, by the way, John is the only one of the apostles who is not killed. He dies as an old man. But when he's, he's sent into exile on the Isle of Patmos, that's where God uses him to write the book of Revelation. It's interesting. There was a Roman coin at the time. It had a picture of an ox on one side, and it had an altar and a plow. And underneath it says, ready for either. And that's really what these men were like. For many, like James, it was a quick death and a short life. For John... It was a long until he was a very old man 
He served God all his days. In his latter years, John is remembered for just simply speaking this to Christians time and time again. Little children, love one another. He seemed to embrace and know the love of the Savior. Then you've got this next guy here, verse 3, Philip. Philip, uh, he's also, uh, he's the guy that introduces Bartholomew or Nathaniel to Jesus. Okay, he's a guy who promptly serves Christ. It's in fact, you see it as soon as he finds the Messiah. Next thing you know, he's going and finding someone. You find the guy, the next one, Bartholomew. Okay, this is the guy who said, what are you talking about? Messiah, Jesus, he's from where? Nazareth. Come on. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. That's his statement right there. Then he meets Jesus and then, whoa, he's saying, you truly are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then you have. This next one, Matthew, and I want you to not miss this. He calls himself Matthew, the tax collector. We've already met Matthew. We've done a great amount of discussion and study about him. But Matthew was on like he was considered the lowest of the low. You had the guy who was ruling the provincial governor who had overrun Israel. Underneath that, they had tax collectors. These were the traitors. These are the ones who sold out to the Roman Empire to extort taxes out of their own people. And they had the power of Rome to back them up. They became very wealthy in doing so, but they were hated and despised. And yet Jesus came to Matthew and said, follow me. And he left it all behind. He dropped it. You know, think about it. The fishermen, they could always go back to what? Fishing, right? You need a boat, pole, you got it, right? He could never go back to tax collecting. And yet this man, he was so impressed with the need to everyone know Christ. He has a big party, invites all these tax collectors and all these quote unquote sinners so they can meet the savior of the world. It was kind of like this. He had been forgiven much. He loved much. And he always remembered what Jesus rescued him from. I, I find that as a pastor. People that have been involved in some pretty gross, great sin. And they've been rescued by the Messiah. They love him greatly. There is an allegiance there that goes deep because they realize how much they've been forgiven. And you'll find as you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more you realize what you've been forgiven of and the greatness of God's love for you and the security that's found in there, the greater is the love for him expressed in all of life. You just like, I want to give it all to you, Lord. This is Matthew. God uses him to write the very letter that we're studying. Then there's Thomas. He's called the twin. Uh, this guy is a guy of a lot of courage. He actually, when Jesus is going to go down to Judea, enemy country, Thomas said, let's go with him and we'll die with him. But Thomas is remembered mostly as the doubting Thomas. He just said, guys, I simply can't believe that he's resurrected. And yet he gave this great profession of faith when Jesus gave him the privilege to see. And he said, my Lord and my God. And then, uh, just as far as Thomas goes, by the way, tradition holds that he actually takes the gospel to India. In fact, there is a church still today, the Maratoma Church, down in southwestern India, that still is going. And they trace its origins to Thomas, bringing the gospel to him. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. Okay? We know nothing about this man. All we know, according to church tradition, is that he takes the gospel into what was now modern-day Iran. Then you got Thaddeus. Okay, he had multiple names, Labaius or Judas, the son of James. Uh, his name literally means uh, breast child or Labaius is like heart child. It's kind of the equivalent of like mama's boy. Okay, and obviously he was a tender soul kind of guy. But God used this man in great ways. 
Tradition holds that he was God used him, in, especially in the area of Syria, where he actually healed a king and led him to Christ. A crisis broke out because this king had become a Christian that a nephew of the king took a, um, a club and bludgeoned this guy to death. And so a club has always been kind of the symbol of Thaddeus. Then you have Simon the Zealot. Okay, this the Zealot part means either he was zealous for God, and there are a lot of people like that, or he was one of these group like they were trying to create terror for Rome. He could have been both. But Jesus calls this man to himself. And it was really a rather a miracle of God that a guy who was a zealot for God and Judaism could live in close proximity with Matthew, the tax collector, who he would consider the scum of the earth. And yet Jesus brings people from all backgrounds, enemies, those who we say cannot be reconciled through Christ. You can be one. And then we have one we're all too familiar with, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, the word Iscariot likely has to do with the fact that he is from the south. All of these other guys are found in the, in the northern part in Galilee. They all have the Galilean accent thing going on. Iscariot, there are two villages, uh, Kariot, this means man of Kerioth. There were two in Judah. He was probably from one of those. He was probably one of the most refined of them. If anybody had an education beyond synagogue school, it was probably Judas, Judas Iscariot. Now, it's interesting. He is the treasurer. You usually put a guy who can be counted on, trustworthy, in charge of your money, right? That's what Jesus did. He puts Judas Iscariot in charge of the finances of the ministry. He would have had a rather esteemed position among them all. Don't get the idea that he was just far worse than anybody else. He was about as good and about as bad as the rest of them. But, you know, the same sun that that actually melts the wax, it hardens the clay. And in Judas case, Jesus never penned out to be what he wanted. You see, he wanted Jesus to use this miraculous power and use it on Rome. He kept waiting for that to happen because he would then be in a position where he could reign with this Christ. And certainly Jesus had power. I mean, no Roman army would ever be able to put up a fight against a guy who could raise people from the dead. And yet he was kind of like a gambler who kept just thinking, one, I know I lost again, but this next one, I'm going to win it all. Well, it never happened. So Judas, you want to see what money can do for you and a love of it? Judas Iscariot trades Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. He eventually realizes what he's done. A man is totally innocent, tries to commit suicide, even fails at that. He manages to kill himself, but it's really messy. He lost his life. He lost it all. And, you know, I'm like, man, did Jesus make a mistake? Did he make a mistake by picking Judas? I mean, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer and he picked Judas. No mistake. It was prophesied that that the Messiah would be actually handed over by a close friend. Psalm 41, 41, I believe it's verse 9. And that's exactly what happened. It was all part of the plan. You see, these are very ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through because his spirit was moving in them, and they were following him as Lord. There is a church in Strasbourg, France. During World War II, uh, it was bombed, and it had all this damage. They had a statue they really liked. It was a statue of Jesus, but a beam came down and busted off both the hands of Jesus there. And a local sculptor said, you know, listen, I will for free. I'll fix that for you. I'll, I'll repair it. And they thought about it for a while. They go, no, we're going to leave it as is, because it'll serve as a continual reminder 
that we are the earthly hands of Jesus on this earth. Starts with these men. It continues today. God uses the totally inadequate to accomplish his great mission. And he does so through the power of his spirit. Friends, it's happening right now. Like last week, we had our youth, high school and junior high students, running a sports camp. And they led the devotionals. They led all the activities that they invested in the lives of all these little kids that came. This week, we've got Vacation Bible School. If you're trying to figure out what's going on in the foyer, you're going to the new little decorative theme here. We're getting ready because this place will be packed out with little kids and we will have over a 100 volunteers pouring their life out to help these kids know the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus. God always uses the inadequate, starting with me, the most inadequate of us all, continuing through each of you. But you, all of us, we have to embrace the idea he desires to use us. We have to be yielded to him. You see, God fully intends to use us in the lives of his people. He doesn't need the exceptional. He doesn't even need the faithful. Do you know that God can use even the wicked? He does so even in the case of Judas. God is able, period. See, God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. You know what? That's happening right now. I'm going to invite Sandor uh, to come forward here because in real time, we're going to experience how God continually is at work using his people. And I, I'd like you to, to hear this and share in this event, Sandor. Thank you. I feel totally inadequate in public speaking. Um, but many of you know about and have been praying for Leah Parker, who is a three-year-old girl here in Waco in need of a heart transplant. Back in February, Sergio from our fellowship family was updating us on her current health status and was telling us about the fundraising events that were going on to help that family. At that very moment, I felt God really placed it on my heart to try and help their family, and I immediately thought it would be really cool to try to get a song together um, that we could sell and um, raise money for them. Well, fast forward five months, and the song's done, and I can say it's been a really incredibly rewarding experience to have been part of. It's now completed, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share it with you today. Before I do so, I'd like to thank the um, people. It's been my pr- privilege to collaborate with. It's just been incredible to, to work with these great musician and men, musicians and men, um, starting with Craig Ratliff, Aaron Becker, Todd Meehan, Brian Baker, Todd um, Blattman, and, and Kenny Gridell and Josh Bissell. Just, it's been really cool to have the opportunity to, to work and play with them. Um, so you can help. Leah, by buying the song for 99 cents through iTunes, the proceeds will go towards helping the Parker family raise um, their $75,000 goal that they need through the Children's Organ Transplant Association. To do so, there's a really cool link on the church's website, or in your program, in your bulletin, you'll see a link to the, that will take you directly there. I, I have one more surprise for you. We have the Parker family. If you would come forward here, they are actually with us this morning. And we wanted to be able to come and just to be able to pray with you. And so I want you to welcome Ross and Katie, Jacob, and Leah Grace. I tell you what, what an amazing journey you are on. What a great smile. We love this family dearly. We would like to see that need met. If you could just spread the word, that is an awesome song. 
And it talks about the love of God is found in the face of Christ. That's where God's grace is. And so what we want to do is we want to just pray and encourage you in this journey to tell you that we love you and we look forward to God's provision in your life. So can we just all pray together? Lord, we want to thank you for the privilege of being able to come as a church body. Very ordinary people, Lord, and yet you're doing an extraordinary work. So, Father, I want to lift up this dear family. Would you give them strength for the journey? Would you uphold them by your omnipotent right hand? We want to ask, Lord, that you would provide a heart for Leah Grace according to your timetable. Would you protect her from illness? Would you give her strength in all these matters? And, Father, we ask that this family might continue to glorify you, that they might continue to bear fruit of praise. Would you continue to increase their faith? And, Father, I would ask that you would raise the funds needed for little Leah to receive this heart transplant. So we commit them to you, Lord. We praise you and thank you that you do your work through very ordinary people like us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.